Welcome to Audible Brutality. Two grouchy musicians humorously complaining about the state of music today. Featuring Adam Percy and Tim Vandevan. Take it away, Adam and Tim. Hey, Adam. What's going on, brother? Hey, Timothy. What's <laughs> up, buddy? Uh, you know, it's uh, it's just another wonderful, warm, wonderful day out here. Um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way the summer's turned out, even though I've had to stay inside a lot of the time and not yes. really go anywhere, but... Uh, you know, it could have been worse. It could have been tornadoes and locusts, and I didn't have any of those, thankfully. Well, the so, year huh? is still young, Tim. Fair enough. 2020 <laughs> I don't has want to been... <laughs> yeah, 2020 has been kind of tough. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, what about well, you? What about there out there on Denman Island? Uh, we finally got some summer kicking in here. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a little, you know, hey man, we live in a temperate rainforest. <laughs> it was kind of rainy and shitty for most of June, but we finally actually got some nice weather. Um, and Hey man, as far as pandemics go, we're already three quarters isolated anyway. So it's been, it's been pretty good. I can't, I honestly cannot complain. Um, and Hey, I still get to do this podcast. So yeah, yeah. uh, Don't mind. uh, It's like staying home to do this, right? Count your blessings while you have a man, because that's what keeps you going and sane. <laughs> well, you know, life is is definitely better looking at this side of the daisies, you know. So uh, I'll yes. I'll take I'll take this. So I'll take. But it uh, too, buddy. I know what we're going to do is we're going to delve into something just a little bit ahead of schedule here. So yes, uh, Adam, you came up with this great topic, and this topic is dynamics is not a rest. Exactly. <laughs> I love that saying. Taking a, you know, a, a one note break between, you know, some chaotic guitar part is not introducing dynamics into the song. You're not, exactly. you're not, you're not like, ooh, listen to the dynamics. Listen to the, the ups and the downs. No, like that's not, that's a rest. It's not dynamics. <laughs> this applies equally to drummers too, where, you know, because you're going boom, tada, boom, tada, boom, tada, boom, tada, boom. And then there's like boom, tada, boom, tada, boom. Boom, tada, boom. That wasn't dynamics. That was you stopping. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, dynamics is 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 a little bit more and a little bit less. It's not necessarily stopping and starting. Stopping and starting, I guess, could be sort of part of contributing to dynamics. But it's not. It isn't Perhaps. dynamics specifically. Like, dynamics is... Again, sort of the ebbs and flows, the pushes and the pulls, the feels, um, you know, where where emphasis has to be made in a song, whether that's on the chorus, whether it's on that last vocal line leading into the chorus where the singer just gives it that much more. If you want to dynamics in, in, the, in the right way is that it's quieter. It starts quiet, you know. We suffer and, now musically, I think, from a, a serious lack of dynamics, at least in modern 
pop music. Yeah. It's definitely a thing. I, you know, I, um, I remember this is actually a good example of, di- of, of good dynamics. Uh, but I remember uh, mowing my lawn and I'd put the new, uh, well, at the time it was a new Arcade Fire record on Reflector, the, their first mm-hmm. single off of that. And I, I was mowing the lawn and, and just sort of realizing, whoa, things really come up in the chorus. And then the, you, you mm-hmm. could actually hear them rise and fall between the verse and the chorus. You could hear, it's not necessarily that the volume went up and down, but you could hear that moment where the band pushes things a little more in the chorus and you're like ah oh, wow I, 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 I was sitting there kind of going I don't actually remember the last time where like I audibly noticed that in mm-hmm. a recording and sort of going oh wow that's like that still really works why did why did we get rid of that again <laughs> why, loudness why in the wars. recording process loudness wars loudness wars that's why we got rid of it when they re- when People realized when record labels realized they could pin the meters and brick wall every recording and slap it onto a CD because you didn't have that luxury with vinyl back in the day. You can't brick wall a master and put it on a rec on on a vinyl record and expect one that the needle's not going to cut through all the way to the other side. And two, that it's the needle, you know, you're going to drop the needle be like, I was going to say, and your record's over. I was going to say, we don't say you can't do that with vinyl as a moral decision. (laughs) It's not a question of morals. It's a question. It's a technical problem. You cannot science science. We could probably go on ad nauseum with this one here, but well, definitely, I, you know, I, I I hope that dynamics is something that recordings eventually start bringing back or paying a little bit more attention to in future. Um, be that trailblazer, bring back dynamics. You do. Trailblazer. You guys don't do be it. afraid of them, man. You know, everybody's got a fucking volume knob or a volume slider. They can turn it up if they want that shit louder. And you know, you don't, you don't, you don't have to give it to them loud straight out of the gate. Um, God, no. God, no, stop. Gratuitous interview. I'm super excited about the show because we have the one, the only Caroline Brooks coming up. She she graciously did an interview with us uh, a little while back. She yep. is one of the founders, one of the three amazing humans that is part of the Good Lovelies, uh, one of my favorite folk bands. And, you know, the three of them, they're some of my favorite people, too. So Adam and I got to interview Caroline. And that was. Oh, yeah. A highlight, man. Nothing. Yeah, she's super nice. And uh, we dive pretty deep into some interesting topics. You'll get to hear it Mm -hmm. in a minute for sure. Yeah, And you'll find out once again, the guest is a lot smarter than the hosts. So Ah. there you go. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we're kind of finding that. It's sort of like, you know, when the opening band like just kicks the headliners, headliner band's ass and you're like, who did I really pay the ticket for? Hmm. Exactly. Not those guys. That oh person. my goodness! Yeah. We're, yeah, we're just a couple of, up. yeah, we're just a couple of grouchy old washed-up musicians. <laughs> we are, we are look, the bit, we are the bit players in our own story, as it were. <laughs> we'll go down, down, down into the cold dark ground. We'll be set upon the wind, never to be found. When they ask what's come of us, nothing. 
She's a Juno winner, a CBC favorite, a stellar musician and songwriter, a mom, and she's one-third of the Good Lovelies. She is Caroline Brooks, and she's here with us today. So, Adam, you were asking Caroline about her process. Do you start with lyrics and sort of go from there, uh, or... Do you have a process or do you do multiple disciplines across to try and get the sort of material you want? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I guess the the my immediate when I'm thinking about that, my immediate feeling is I don't believe I have one specific approach to songwriting. Um, there's cool. a natural a natural approach to songwriting, which is I pick up an instrument or I'm walking down the street and a melody will come to me, some sort of chordal pattern. And usually with it, there'll be a a lyrical hook now whether that lyric sticks or not um is is the big question so i spend a lot of time doing stream of consciousness lyric writing at first when i'm trying to come up with uh some sort of melodic form or chord changes and and maybe different parts like this a first or a second or a third section of a song whether it's called a bridge or a chorus i try not to marry myself to that right away because i feel like that can become stifling um uh sidebar I'm particularly interested in songs that don't have that kind of structure to it right now which is in part why I'm so drawn to this Bonnie Light Horseman record where it feels like a song might only have the same four chord changes over and over and over again even though there are clearly different melodic sections to it I'm like super drawn to that 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 type of songwriting where I'm not really even sure where where I am in the tune you know like it brings me on some kind of uh, I hate this word but journey without actually being like (laughs) okay now I'm in the b section or no now oh here's the bridge right I I, right I like to be taken out of that and I don't know if that's because I've spent so much time thinking about those different parts of songs um but yeah the stream of consciousness lyric writing is helpful because it helps me not get so in my head I totally identify with you on the lyric writing thing I find it the hardest part of all songwriting um and um I often have to there's sort of in my writing experience there's two songs for me one is comes out super fast almost like a brain dump and it's it exists pretty closely to what it came out as. I have a few songs like that. Um, I have a song called Hurry Up that I wrote for the last Shapeshifters record that literally the lyrics did not change. And I wrote that song within 15 minutes. Like it just came out so fast. And then wow. I have other, yeah, it was very, those are those are my favorite. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Um, the, other, the other songs are, I would say probably, you know, 70 to 80 percent of my songs that exist in recording are more revision based so so a song um i can tell you a song from the good lovelies record burn the plan called waiting for you which is was a a really i i love that song i love singing that song that one took a lot of massaging i melodically had these great parts and i just was really struggling i had the chorus lyrics but it took me a very very long time to let go and and find the lyrics for that song so i have a bunch of different ways that i access lyrics through journals um i have a i have like a (laughs) it sounds so unromantic but i have an ongoing lyric idea sheet which allows me to like i think sometimes uh, as a songwriter if you come up a lot uh, against this block over and over and over again you just want to I don't know about you guys, but I just want to walk away and then it, it, the song doesn't go anywhere. So I have this lyric, a bank, and 
they're basically lyrics I feel okay about. You know what I mean? Like they're not perfect, but they're things right. that can exist. Um, I wouldn't call them poetry because I don't necessarily consider myself a poet. Um, but I use those and they sort of help liberate my angst. <laughs> they, let, they let me let go in a way and sort of find my way through the song. But yeah, it's, I again, I wouldn't say there's one specific way of writing. And certainly over the last two to three years, I've been spending a lot more time co-writing, which has been a new experience for me, even though Carrie, Sue and I in The Good Lovely share all co-writes across all songs. They're obviously my original co-writers. Um, in the last few years, I've been trying uh, trying co-writing, and that is a very different experience um, in general. Are you co-writing outside of The Good Lovelies, uh, outside of Carrie and Sue? Are you working with producers, co-writing with producers? Are you co-writing with Jill yeah. Barber or Jen Grant? Uh, yeah. Oh, I'd love to write with Jill. I'd love to write with both those ladies. Um, <laughs> I am writing with a, a, a bunch of different people. So, and, and actually, the last Good Lovelies album uh non-christmas album shapeshifters that the there's a song called i see gold um which was our lead single from that record i wrote that song right. with robin robin delunto so um yeah and and i've been writing a little bit with oh for years with les cooper who produced our first uh three records um les is awesome um I've written a, a bit with Peter Katz. We just wrote a song a few months ago that I absolutely oh, yeah. love. And yeah, I'm super open to it. It's it's a very different experience than writing for yourself. And I, I do struggle with it um, on a philosophical level because I fear the boardroom song, if that makes sense. Um I think I understand that. You don't want a song written by a committee where there's 17 hands and 17 visions all twisting and turning your song around so that it's nothing like it was in the first place. Right. Yeah. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, I feel, I think that's exactly it, is that for me, songwriting exists in a deeply personal space. And um, that's not, I'm not saying that I haven't written songs that are not personal and in fact I would say some of those songs are my most successful quote-unquote songs for radio play um yeah I I do struggle with it philosophically because I don't want to create art that feels overly processed right a sort of song by numbers yeah yeah I don't and I think that's why I'm really drawn to these songs that don't exist in typical structure even though like don't get me wrong I love a wicked pop song that I can bop to like I love that but for me I for the type of writing that I connect with and the sort of feelings you probably hear hear my kids in the background (laughs) laughing (laughs) um (laughs) which leads into some questions around songwriting. Um, yeah, I, I feel really connected to songs that don't feel like they're trying to do something. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sure. perfect oh, sense. Absolutely. Um, how does it, I was going to say you, you, uh, you mentioned uh, your album Shapeshifters and, and uh, you, you uh, I think that was co-produced with Daniel Ledwell. Do you sort of notice a difference? Like, uh, I mean, obviously, like when you're when you're songwriting at home or, or maybe even in practice with like sort of people you're familiar with, there's, um, you know, there's sort of a familiar rapport. So uh, when it comes to going into the studio, uh, 
obviously there's sort of like, okay, now things have to kind of be a little bit more structured. Do you give yourself a little bit of leeway when you're recording in terms of, in terms of like, uh, okay, this is the material I want, but the producer is kind of hearing something this way. Uh, you, I, I think you, you co-produced it. If I'm, if I read that right again on your, on your album. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're, you're basically asking, you're basically asking if the songs um, change drastically in studio. Is that what you're getting at? Obviously, you want to capture a moment, and that's the idea mm. behind recording. I you're, you're capturing I see what you're a saying. spirit in a moment. Do, do, does that change for you in the studio at all? Like, You know, I would say that if you asked me that question a decade ago versus now, I think that I'd probably respond differently. You know, I I struggled in the early days of going into the studio with having a very set idea about what things should sound like or what my role should be in this the right. studio. And and in the I remember very clearly when we were recording our first full length record in a big studio in Toronto with a really well uh, respected and someone I had a ton of respect for a uh, producer um, again Les Cooper I really struggled with my place in that and and what I could say and what I couldn't say and yes. um, and I've noticed over the years obviously once you've made you know five six seven records in these kind of studio settings or not the recording at Dan's was very different than making a lot of our other records I just noticed like a little bit simultaneously a little bit more go with the flow feel and then also right. an ability to say what I really wanted without being worried about it. Do you, do you, does that make sense? Like that I, makes perfect absolutely. sense. Yeah, I no longer, I guess over the years I've realized at some point in the studio you have to commit to what you're doing. Because if you're in a big studio, you're spending a certain amount of money, uh, quite a bit of money, <laughs> every single day. <laughs> and yes, you can revise and you can change your mind and you can try to work... Or you can just commit to something. And it's once you're able to commit to something that you feel pretty good about, I feel I feel like that's important to recognize. And also it's important to recognize when you're not going to be okay with committing to that later. So that sure. is something I've learned over the years is that I'll spend a lot of time thinking, is this worth me bringing up? Is it going to slow mm -hmm. the process down for no reason? Or is this really something that I'm going to regret not bringing up because it's important to me so in terms of certain songs taking a certain shape there are certain songs in my repertoire that I bring to the table that I feel very strongly should exist in a certain way but there are other mm -hmm. songs again I don't feel committed to and that is interestingly I'll use I See Gold as an example when we brought that song into the studio the demo that Robin and I put together for it was very pop very very pop and at first I was like I wonder if we should make it more folky so that it exists more in good lovelies quote air quote land or should mm -hmm. we go full full pop you know like so I think what we did is as a team we really I mean and and again all this contextually to remember that it's not just me it's also Carrie and Sue the three we are a three-headed monster <laughs> we like to joke <laughs> and the three of us rely on each other both musically in the studio to make decisions we bounce work ideas off each other we manage a band mm -hmm. together we're very very um egalitarian in terms of our approach to things and right. i think with that song i i did let certain things go that i probably that i might not have in the early days but i also because of that i feel like 
the song went where it needed to go. Right on. Okay, yeah. so would that be some coming some of the ideas were presented, you said, by Sue and Carrie, uh, but also with Daniel Ledwell, I, I, for me, I noticed a bit of a difference in the sound, mm-hmm. um, which I think, well, I've worked with Daniel Ledwell before, and, and he, he imparts a sound, which I think is, is a mark of a, uh, usually of a great producer, mm-hmm. that he imparts a bit of his sound on, or her sound on, your recordings. Did you feel any of that with Daniel Edwell? Did you feel that he, uh, he had sort of, his vision was an interesting one or like, I, I found him to be a mad scientist when I was in the studio and I loved everything that he did. Dan is a, Dan is a wonderful person to work with. Um, I mm. think he's actually one of the most underrated producers in Canada. I, I really do feel like he doesn't get, here, here. get enough credit for what he puts out. Um, I think what I loved most about working with Dan is that he gave us the space and the the tools to make our own decisions. So right. he mm-hmm. gave us time, like Shapeshifters more than any other record that we've done. Actually, the most recent album we played a lot on too. We played, we played all that record pretty much except, you know, bass and drums and stuff. But Carrie, Sue and I played the guitars. We played keys. We played, I think Sue played trombone at some point. <laughs> But because we were in this beautiful space, it was so, so inspiring. We weren't under a time pressure. I mean, we were, but we we didn't have that big studio. Oh, you're paying a thousand dollars right now. Um, We didn't have (laughs) that that pressure, you know, and he's like, no, he's like he'd come up with an idea or we'd come up with an idea and he'd he'd spend the time with us, letting us figure out how to play it or to do it. And ultimately it made for a really a incredible experience and b we feel so tied to that record because we have our fingers all over that record um yeah Mm -hmm. and yeah he has great he's really amazing with in my opinion his um strengths lie a lot in um in some of the synth sounds he comes up with some of the patches he helped us build a a build a mellotron of our voices so you can hear at some points like he basically sampled each of our voices and we were able to create these like harmony patterns and yeah he's he's so great and um what track is that on i want to hear that yeah i'm going to try to remember which track it's on i know it you can hear it in i feel i want to say um there's definitely a frog a sample of frogs from carrie's dad's farm that that uh dan put on a song called uh this little heart there's also some really cool uh on that song hurry up he he did a lot of really interesting sampling and vocal stacking and yeah he cut some pieces up and it made it really that song um, which I emotionally feel super tied to. He brought it in a to a direction that I hadn't expected, that I absolutely love. And um, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's 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 a gem for sure. Stretching slowly, it's after love that kind of magic that happens yeah where somebody's just sort of like 
oh, I just hear Mellotron. <laughs> like, that. That's so cool. Um, let's, oh, make, let's make you into a Mellotron. <laughs> he, he, he surprised me in the studio because I, I was lucky enough to work with him through Gabriel Papillon back in, oh, right. I want to say, 2012. And uh, I was on a few of the songs on her album. And I remember the song of hers, Go Into the Night, which is one of her most beautiful songs. Very simple drum part to play. And then, you know, so we do a couple takes of it. He's like, great. And then we move on to all the other songs and crazy experiments like, you know, take all the cymbals down and play with mallets mm-hmm. and don't use a snare drum and don't do this yeah. and don't do that. And all kinds of like out of the box thinking, which I was really into instead of just the usual, you know, here's a song and do, do, do yeah. that, you yeah. know. Um, so we came back to go into the night at the end of the session uh, and he's like, Hey, I have these ideas. I want you to go back down there and do this for me. And he said, do a drum solo. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, that doesn't make sense in this song. He's like, no, trust me, do play it and play in time and sort of try to be like, you're the drummer from Wilco. I'm like, oh, all right. <laughs> and so I do this weird sort of like in time flopping around kind of drum thing. And then he says, okay, now uh, grab your mallets and just do cymbal washes for me. I'm like, okay. You know, and I sort of, I leave the session. I had fun. Uh, he was great guy like you said uh gabrielle's a great lady too and just like wonderful humans i just had a I had a great afternoon great day with a couple of fabulous humans i leave and then the album comes out a little later on and i figure out what he was doing is he essentially turned me into the atlantic ocean which i thought was pretty oh, cool that's cool yeah yeah, yeah that, that's the outro in the song and i just i thought wow what a mad this guy's a mad scientist he's a genius yeah <laughs> And when I heard you guys were working with him, I was so excited for you. So, because like, he's such a, he's got such great vision. And again, he's, he, like you said, he's not one of these, he's not cracking the whip where he's not saying, no, Caroline, that's not how your song goes. Yeah. You know, yeah. He's, he's like, well, hey, let's, you want to try this spice in this? Do you want to try that spice? Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's try some things. And to some, I want to not, I don't want to say throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks because I think he already kind of knows where he, want, he wants it to go. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Totally. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's just fooling us and he knew all the way, like from the start, what he wanted. And Perhaps. he just makes you think that you made those decisions. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. That's brilliant, actually. That's brilliant. <laughs> So in talking about production, have you done much production of other people yourself? Have you been, have people called you up and said, Hey, come and come and make me sound great or come and work on my record. I know you've done some backing work with some people, but have you done a lot of production as well? I haven't done a lot of production work. I certainly like would call, I've definitely consulted with people on production. I have been sent a lot of early mixes or yeah I've been a, a feedback mm-hmm. source for people just I would say around 20 uh, 2009 I had a friend who asked me to produce some songs I I did that for him his name's Kevin Zarnett that was definitely mm-hmm. I feel like I did not have the skills the language yet um I knew I, I you know that being able to translate what you want to hear into a clear direction is a huge talent I think of many producers particularly producers who aren't at the board because um, I'm I'm not getting that skill set I haven't had that skill set until just I'm just starting right now so when the pandemic started and I realized that I had very limited ability to record you know vocals yeah I do a lot of backing vocals for people and um, mm-hmm. I do some vocal sessions. I've done some, um, you know, singing on um, 
uh, opening credits of a TV show, that kind of thing. So in order for me to do this, while I can't be around other people, I basically had to invest in a home recording setup, which is hilarious because, you know, you get your interface and then you get your DAW set up and then you're like, oh, I need a good microphone. And then you get your microphone and then you realize you live in the noisiest house on the planet. And so you need baffles (laughs) and you just like, I have so much respect for recording people because the amount of money they have to put into this is just insane. Um, But yeah, so I've just been over the last three months getting myself to a a point where I'm recording and trying to learn to edit. And so I feel like if I have those skills as a producer, that would be so much more helpful because you can Mm -hmm. speak the language clearly and do some of it yourself because sometimes I feel like that's the most challenging thing is if you can do it yourself, then you have so much more at your fingertips than if you have to ask someone else to do it. So yeah, production's been something definitely that I've been curious about. And I would say I've been deeply, deeply involved in the production of all of my records that I've been involved in. Mm -hmm. But uh, the idea of taking it on definitely is daunting. Like for someone else, I I would definitely want to have a few more tricks up my sleeve before before taking on a proper record. Well, actually, this kind of makes me think of a session that Tim and I were on like like years ago where uh, I came up to Montreal and we kind of set up an impromptu studio in his in his house basement to uh, record Amanda's record. Uh, t- Amanda Mabro. She knows. Yeah, she knows Amanda quite yeah, well. Yeah, actually. of course. And, yeah, uh, I love her. Yeah. That was uh, that. W- it was funny because like I, I had all of this stuff, I you know, like the racks of gear. And but I, I, I just bought my Pro Tools rig. So. We hmm. get up there and we do the session and, and it was kind of this hodgepodge of equipment. You know, Rick, uh, who was also in her project at the time, was, you know, he had a bunch of stuff and a bunch of mics. So we just sort of threw it all together in the basement. And at the end of it, Amanda comes downstairs. She's like, oh, Adam, thanks so much. Like, I, I appreciate you, you know, hauling all your stuff up from Toronto and, you know, all of this equipment. It makes this really sound great. And I'm like, you're welcome. Uh, but so you know, I didn't use any of that. <laughs> it was it was was all in the computer um so and i keep thinking uh another one that makes me think of it is um well that you know that famous chris isaac song wicked game and everyone you know like it's like a classic from the 90s and everyone thinks it's this two inch tape reel uh Mm -hmm. you know uh you know almost like country twang kind of just deep and rich sounds and I, I remember reading an article, I think, in Sound on Sound about that session. And that was one of actually one of the earliest digital recordings from like proper digital recordings. Oh. And a lot of the a lot of the instrumentation was kind of like what you were saying. It was like they, they did like samples and um, it was actually very technology based to make that song happen. And so it was sort of like uh, a sound that is, you know, true. I don't know, you know, Sun Records. Oh, I want that Sun Records sound. Well, yeah, you know, if I mean, you use your a, ears, you can you can yeah. make it happen mm-hmm. even with 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 a DAW. You just have to. There's a plugin for that now. She's <laughs> 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 like, you want that? You want that sound? Here it is. It's so yeah. I think that's the thing that's sort of blown my mind in terms of um, spending this time recording is just having access to to some really beautiful sounds that don't exist in the room they're literally on my interface it's really Mm -hmm. really interesting to me how it's changing and it's also putting you know I I kind of feel simultaneously 
good about it, but also a little sad because I love the big studio recording experience. I've had yeah. amazing, made amazing uh, music at Canterbury Studios in Toronto. I've, you know, we've made like five of our albums there. And mm-hmm. that experience is so special when you can, you know, get everybody alive off the floor or you can, you know, track three vocals simultaneously in separate booths. And that that's not the experience I'm having by myself at home. But yeah. I don't I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Like I think they can exist in the same world. And um, yeah, I'm super enjoying it. It's definitely blowing my mind. And I'm hoping this summer um, I'm taking a bit of a sabbatical from Good Lovelies. Uh, Carrie Sue and I are taking a little break. I'm hoping to focus on some of the, that skill set and through songwriting, discovering what I can do with it because I think it's also a super exciting creative tool. It's not just a recording tool like. It's a creative mm-hmm. writing tool that I yes. now have access to that I've never had access to before. As someone who just, you know, oh, I'm going to write a song, so I'm going to sit with my guitar, and that's how I'm going to do it. Like, there's so many different ways to approach songwriting, and I have barely, you know, scratched the surface, and I think this will be just another tool. Yeah. No, I think the beauty of it is, too, is that even 20 years from now, it'll still feel like you've only scratched the surface, even though you have, like, a million things, you know, a million arrows in your quiver, so to speak. Mm kind of leads me to my next question for you which is so women in music mm-hmm. let's talk about women in music um <laughs> there aren't a lot of women producers and i'm i'm wondering is that because well we're all a bunch of misogynistic pricks that won't let women behind the glass is it that women aren't interested in doing that which i doubt mm-hmm. like what would be your take because i know you're you're very you and carrie and sue are very invested in your recordings you don't just yeah. walk into the studio no. and say okay make me sound great and go home the the decisions are, are all made by the three of you along with whomever is producing with you yeah but why do you why would you say that it is what's it what, why would you say there are fewer women behind the glass driving the bus as it were yeah i mean Tim, I think that it also relates to any, you know, there's there's so so many ways I could approach an answer to this question, but I really think mm-hmm. that I can compare it to women in politics, mm-hmm. uh, women in professional s- settings, women CEOs. Uh, could talk okay. about that. Let me back up. There's sort of two, there's so many things I want to say right now. Um, Sure. (laughs) The first is opportunities early on. So I, it's not lost on me that in my high school, there were a bunch of guys who play guitar in the hallways. And I know, Mm -hmm. I know I could play guitar as well as them, but I was afraid to sit with them. And I Mm -hmm. wonder why, why I was led to believe I should be singing instead of jamming. So what okay. what is it about how we see women in the industry and how does that pigeonhole women from a very early age? I'm lucky I had great mentors in terms of guitar playing. Um, I s- sat at home and I got I had access to the most beautiful guitars. I had a great teacher in my dad and I he made sure I learned from other people. So playing was always a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. But it's it I think similarly in production is it's about the opportunities women have to do it. And I think it's changing. I know a lot of really mm-hmm. amazing produ- uh, female producers. Um, we have folks like Hill Kukurtis, who's doing crazy great work. Uh, she did a remix of one of our songs a couple years ago, a pop remix. She does a lot of amazing production, and she's also doing a lot of mentorship, which I think is an important piece here, too, is finding yeah. space for women that feels comfortable, mm-hmm. that 
isn't intimidating. Um, I mean, you asked me a few questions ago if I am doing pr- production. You know, a big part of that is my inner inner self telling me I can't do it. And that's really yeah. problematic. And I can guarantee if I was a man with the same experience that I've had in this music industry, I would have no problem saying yes. And I know that about myself. And I know that about a lot of my female colleagues is, is where do we feel like we fit? And where is it comfortable for us to press the issue? Um, yeah. And I think there are definitely mentorship programs happening that are encouraging women to become producers to become sound techs. I mean, we tour with female sound techs um, and, um, mm-hmm. and we have focused on hiring women as much as possible in our work in order to make a place for them. Because uh, that's it. It's about finding the place, the places for women to really flourish and have access to those same kind of, same kind of roles that are traditionally male roles. If we look at technicians mm-hmm. and lighting techs and so on. So it's something we talk about a lot. I think it also relates to what I was trying to say earlier is if we look at any number of professional careers, folks like politicians, um, you know, CEOs in large companies, uh, female representation is not that great. It's still not that great. It's getting better, but it's about creating opportunities for women from an early age and also allowing women who also want to have families and have mm-hmm. a healthy family life to continue in that in in that world you know so if you think about like mm. the rate at which women who are in politics uh it, it's much lower because we often don't give those women this the tools they need to survive once they decide they are also going to have a family and this is something right. i have struggled with tremendously mm. in my career Um, And I'm super lucky because I feel like I've risen above in a lot of cases. But in order to become an expert in production, it's not something you can just do and then, you know, walk away from for four years while you raise your child and put them into kindergarten. You know what I mean? Like creating an environment in which women can also take care of their families and be great producers. That's not an easy thing. It's not lost on me that the industry that we live in is not super supportive of parents in general. For most musicians, it's um, really wonky hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, for starters, like uh, you know, really long late night sessions, and like so, where's where's you know where's the daycare involved in that? Like, yeah. How do you sort that out? Like, I think of Grimes. I've read a few interviews with her where she's literally like, "Why does nobody take me seriously as a producer? This drives me nuts!" Like it's mm-hmm. this constant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and now she's, she's a new parent and that's all anyone seems to want to talk about is like, mm-hmm. you know, Grimes and what she named her baby. And it's like, but, you know, but no one will give her the time of day for, for what she actually does, which is yes. like her production when she's actually quite skilled and, and clearly makes some really cool stuff. So it does almost seem like a bit of a double standard in that where like, you know, um, that's a the, huge double standard. Yeah, They're not asking men the same standard. questions. They're not no. asking like, you know. like you know why would you name your baby such a weird name or whatever like it's like well no like Mm -hmm. why don't you have discussions about like like and why are why are men not having those discussions as well like well the the the, you're 100 right we're not asking men why they leave on tour for a month to go make a living when they leave kids at home but they do ask me that and i i mean (laughs) 
Wow, that's painfully unfair. The, well, yeah. the, quest, the questions are very different. It's we live in a society that centers women around domesticity and uh, duty and sacrifice, and I right. am okay with all those things. I love my domestic life. I love sacrificing elements of my life. I know I don't love sacrificing elements of my my life for my children, but I do it. Um, mm-hmm. But the there's a duty piece there too that I feel like we we constantly demand of women so much. We demand them to be, you know, caretakers. We demand them to be beautiful. We demand them to be creative. We demand them to be, no. I'm spe- specifically speaking about musicians, but when they become mm-hmm. powerful producers, we question why. Why did they get there? How did they get there? Who gave them the leg up? Who did they make out with? you know, to get to that position. And I look at, you're right, Grimes is an example. Lights is an example. There's people in our world like Karen Kozowski, Brandy Zidane. These are folks that work tremendously hard at their craft and they work so Mm -hmm. hard. And we are just starting to realize that women are as good at this as men are. And we have to create the opportunities for them to not just create the opportunities for them to do it, but to continue to support them through that, whether mm-hmm. they decide to yeah. have children or not. But you're right. There's a lot of things that stand in the way of women being super successful long term in this industry. I mean, it's not lost on me, guys. I'm going to turn 40 in a couple of years. And mm-hmm. like, what does that mean to me? It probably means a lot more to me than it does to a 40 year old guy in this industry. You're absolutely right. That's a foreign concept to me to worry about age because, you know, yeah. People were still calling certain, you know, male actors well into their 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Wow, he's still really hot. Yeah. You know? And what happened to her? And it's it's completely unfair. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think that a lot of women artists go through unnecessary trials and tribulations. I mean, you can be a great artist and you can be a great mother at the same time. Yeah. And not every child has to have their mother with them 24 seven. I know that in a perfect world, you, most mothers would love to be with their kids all the time when they're young, especially when they're young. Yeah. You know, by the, t- by the time they turn into teenagers and they <laughs> like, think you're not cool I'm anymore, you don't want to be around them. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, but, uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's, I've worked with a, a lot of female artists and I actually preferred it because there wasn't that weird misogynistic undertone in the band all the time. Yeah. I'm, you know, it, about the girls that coming to the show are dumb and they just want one thing and blah, uh, blah, blah. And, you know, well, OK, to make a joke about the whole thing, there's when I worked with women, there's significantly less burping and farting in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. There's still lots of inappropriate jokes, though, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> That's the important part. So as, as a mom on tour, I know that you guys toured with your children, you and Sue, to, uh, did at least one tour. Was, am I correct in that with, with your kids? Yeah, I mean, I've toured extensively with my kids. And then when Sue and I both had our, we had, have little boys who were born three days apart. Um, we did oh, a few wow. tours. We did a few tours with both of them. Um, and uh, yeah. Definitely was an experience. Got asked a lot of questions about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, why are you doing it? Yeah. And, you how, know, does how, the, yeah. how dare you bring your child on the road? Actually, I, I do have to say, like, my experiences touring with my kids, I know, I know it's not like this for all moms, but I look back on them so fondly. Um, I mean, some were extremely difficult and exhausting, and I definitely pushed myself to the limit. Yeah, some of my favorite family experiences have been on the road, particularly because 
in the cases of certain tours my husband would come on tour and it'd be just like the four of us traveling around I play a show and then we'd kind of adventure during the day on the way to the next show and it's just like I have these very beautiful family memories and we'll probably do it again although it's a little more challenging as the kids get older because it's not cheap to tour with them anymore because they cost full Mm -hmm. fare for flights um if we ever fly again uh yeah (laughs) yeah and then there's also their needs change over time but yeah we've we sue and i have had some hilarious experiences on the road with our boys that's amazing how how old how old uh if you don't mind me asking like when you first went on the road how old were your kids so my daughter yeah my daughter i can remember this very clearly my daughter was born 2012 and end of september and i took her on the road at the end of november of that year oh wow it was really crazy so uh when she was born we had a whole year of touring i think we did over 100 shows that year and we traveled from the u.s we went up to alaska we played in california we did the uk that year we did right across canada and then the following year we did australia yeah, she has a very, oh, very stamped passport. And and she was my little buddy. Like, she, a lot of the times I couldn't afford to bring a nanny on the road. So I hired babysitters at each venue to watch her. And then I was, wow. I was just with her all the time. And I mean, speaking of the power of, of women, I really couldn't have done it without Carrie and Sue. Like, the, the way our band exists and also the kind of men we brought on tour with us. Like I remember touring with Ben Whiteley at one point and he could tell I was so tired and he's like, we were checking into the hotel for a couple hours before show. And he's like, do you want me to take Annie for you for a while? And I just, I remember those moments where just having those extra hands made it possible. And I, yeah, Yeah. I, I, I don't live a normal rock and roll lifestyle that a lot of people um picture like certainly uh when you guys were talking about late night sessions like we're like super nine to fivers like we set those we're like (laughs) we have rehearsal from 10 to 4 today (laughs) and Uh, nice and we were just talking actually about returning in the fall um because we're about to embark on this sabbatical this summer um we're talking about like booking around school and you know we really try to keep when we're not on the road weekends we don't talk to each other about business so there's a lot of good boundary making there with positive time of day (laughs) not too late like i can't even imagine playing music past midnight anymore Uh, you guys have such an amazing chemistry too and i remember that even from the first time that i met the three of you um at the, uh, the the original folk fest that was put on by our good friend Dave Cool, yeah, um, the one in Saint at the at the McCausland Brewery. That was where I first met you and Carrie and Sue, and I still have that little CD by the way oh that you gosh, gave me that hilarious. day that you you asked me to play. You said if you play this, I'll let you have it. And I said sure. <laughs> so I kept playing it, and you know that was our early sadly, early I, management style. <laughs> Bribe yeah, the bartender. Exactly. Well, it, Bribe the bartender. It, it worked. I got to say it worked because everyone that came in said, hey, who is this? I said, oh, it's the Good Lovelies. And I didn't even realize that I'd completely missed your show because I was at the bar, <laughs> uh, you know, serving serving drinks to musicians. So you, when was, what was that? 2008, 2009? I think it was probably was, 08. Okay. Oh, it was just before you released the first album, yeah. the first full length album. You're right. Yeah. That would have been, yeah, 09. And... Yeah, that was uh, 
of a strong Montreal connection. That was lovely times. Um, those were really exciting times. And the chemistry is true. Like we have a very deep friendship between the three of us. Doesn't mean that it's perfect. We Above that, we also have this incredible vocal blend that is so magical I remember the first time we sang together we were just like on a lark it was around Christmas time we decided to sing mm -hmm. in harmony and I remember we were singing um and a hymn called Lohauer Rose and okay. it's really beautiful it goes Lohauer Rose blooming it's a beautiful hymn and we'd all sung it in choirs but we'd all sung different parts. So everything was right. soprano two and there's soprano one and an alto part. And the three of us started singing and I remember the hair on my arms standing up and just everything about that time was so amazing, like getting to know each other better, uh, you know, getting ready to quit our jobs. Um, everything was so exciting. Ah, and and I think, yeah, so special. The Riches to Rags Tour. The Riches yes. to Rags Tour, yes. We are on the continual Riches to Rags Tour. <laughs> this is year 11 of the Riches to oh, Rags God. Tour, yeah, yes. Yeah. Coming up on year 14, which is crazy. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It That's is amazing. so awesome. Uh, it's, uh, uh, the first time I actually got to see the three of you perform live, because of course, you know, you hear things recorded and there could be studio trickery, magic, whatever. This is take 75. You know, that kind of stuff. I remember being absolutely knocked over seeing you guys play. Oh, and just, so it was, nice. you were touring very simply at the time too. You were doing very limited, just, you know, guitar, banjo. And I think Sue played um, bass every now and then, yeah. uh, an acoustic bass. Yeah. And then certain songs, shakers, certain yeah. songs, no shakers, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, I just remember being knocked over. And then I think the year after that, you guys played the Montreal Jazz Festival on the CBC yeah. stage. Yeah, that was really fun. That was That's one of my all-time favorites. I think that's... I had underwear thrown at me that night by my brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I had taken a friend to that show, actually, to see you guys. And he was one of those typical guys like, mur, 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 I don't want to go out. Mur, yeah. Yeah, a bunch of girls. <laughs> and then he saw you guys. And after the show, I said, hey, you want to go meet them? And he's like, wait, what? You know them? I'm like, yeah, I know, yeah, I know them. Come here. And he was absolutely starstruck by you guys. He, uh, It's the first time I've ever seen him shut up. So, No, that's uh, hilarious. That was, that, I'm glad we can help you with that. That was kind of fun. <laughs> that was really fun, actually, that he, he didn't have any words. He was just like, uh, 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 hi, you know. <laughs> But um, so you were talking about a little while ago, Christmas records. Yeah. How, how strange is that to be standing in a studio? You probably just went swimming or something or, you you know, you're, <laughs> you show up in shorts and flip flops and <laughs> and you're in a studio in the middle of July and it's 35 degrees outside and the humidex says it's about 120. And, mm. you know, there you are singing Jingle Bells. How how strange <laughs> is that for you? Yeah, it's uh, well, I. I mean, it's it's pretty strange that I have experience with that not just once, but twice. I've <laughs> made, two, well, let's say two and a half Christmas albums with Good Lovelies. We have a little winter EP as well. Yeah, it's funny because you'd think it'd be strange, but ultimately you're breaking everything down into these musical pieces. So, And I have to say, Christmas music is good. <laughs> like, there's, uh, it is. it's so, it's so interesting. There's... 
so many chord pat, uh, chord changes. So there's a lot there. And we just approach it like any record. I mean, I, I remember when we made our first one, it was produced by uh, Adam King. And actually, mm-hmm. Adam King produced our, la- our latest one as well, our Christmas album uh, called Evergreen. But the first one called Under the Mistletoe, we recorded in May, and it was so hot in Toronto that month. And uh, we, were, we were just kind of in that, like, hazy Toronto uh, humidity days, haze oh, days, yeah. hazy days. Yeah, and it was, it was intense. And I know there was no AC in his studio at the time, and it was on Dundas Street. So it was like, and it was west-facing, so we had tons and tons of sun coming in. It was so hot. Oh. And at oh. one point, we were like, we got all, we've done a lot, and we were doing sort of the extra touches at the end. That was actually a really fun record to make, too, because we played a ton of it uh, as well. And <laughs> Sue decided she wanted to do some percussion with, like, coconut sound, you know, kind of Monty Python-ish. And... Oh, nice. uh, <laughs> She, I just have this memory of her being on Dundas Street in the beating, beating down sun, and she's like cracking open a coconut with like a hammer, <laughs> I was and a chisel. It was just yeah, it's ridiculous. But we, we, we love Christmas music, and I love. I came to it a little later. Like I like to joke that I was very bah humbug about it at first because it felt kind of like, are we capitalizing on this time of year? Is this a right thing to do? Um, Ultimately for me, the music itself is so strong and it's so much fun to perform that I've sort of shed, I've shed that uh, negative, sarcastic kind of bah humbug vibe over the years. And I'm full, full embrace of the Christmas tour every year now, especially Awesome. So you realize it gives people so much joy. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I saw your Christmas tour a number of years ago uh, in Montreal. And it's, again, yeah, you're right. It's a it's a joy. It's <clears throat> it's a few minutes to forget about the terribleness that's going on outside and maybe that there's eight feet of snow. <laughs> well, usually, <laughs> suddenly the, usually in Montreal, yes. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly the eight feet of snow is now looking, well, no, now it's cool because, you know, they just sang about it. Exactly. So it's supposed to snow. It's all right. It's exactly. People in the back going, play yeah. the coconut song. Play the coconut song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say that recording that album in May, definitely, there are definitely a few songs that have a Calypso vibe, which is a little incongruent with Christmas music, but it works. It works. It definitely works. Adam, you got anything else? And I know things are kind of like super uncertain, just Mm -hmm. sort of with the state of the world right now. But uh, Mm -hmm. are you guys working on anything or planning on working on anything in the near future? Yeah, the nature of this sabbatical is twofold. Um, One is that we have been going hard for, again, almost 14 years. And even in the small, quote, breaks we had, those breaks were while we had children. And we need we need to step away for a little bit. Like we need to turn off social media and turn off our email and really take care of ourselves for a little bit. Um, And the form that that will take will probably be a little different for each of us. I can speak for myself that I'm going to really be focusing on writing. Um, all this being said, summer camps were canceled. My summer camps were canceled oh. yesterday, so I'm not really sure. It might just be, uh, you know, hanging with my kids kind of summer. But my my ultimate goal is to write music both for the next Good Lovelies release, but I'm also writing some um, some solo music. So I'm hoping to release a a small record of of songs that have been building up over the years um, sometime in the next year. So that's awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. And um, 
and this partly has been why I have been spending so much time learning how to record myself because I have this sort of idea of recording it in the spaces that feel like comfort and home to me which is Mm. really a big part of my songwriting is that domesticity and family and nostalgia um all of those feelings so yeah that's partly what I'm gonna be working on and um and I'm also gonna be spending a bunch of time in the garden I have um I feel really lucky I have some uh property up north in Ontario and Um, My husband and I are doing a bunch of tree planting and ecological farming, which means we're turning the old farmland back into its original state. So we're digging up some wetlands and building, uh, doing a a grassland project. And yeah, it's super exciting. We have no idea what we're doing. We're like urbanites (laughs) up north, Um, but it's, it's definitely filling my soul for sure. Nice. That's, well, no, that's, that's, that's a good, good good challenge to give yourself i think actually more people should be challenging themselves that way that's awesome that's amazing yes a little little more bees more bees little, definitely more bees. more bees and birds for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i love the i love that when you were talking about going on tour and and that there were people you know people that you were touring with who would be like hey I, do you want me to take the kids for a minute like do you do, do you want a nap <laughs> you know things like yeah. that and i think i think a lot of um, stepping back and listening, but then encouraging the idea of making space for this stuff. Because, you know, I, I, I know for myself when, you know, when I went into a studio for the first time ever at 18, it was like, yeah, all these blinking lights. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, you know, hmm. and to sort of throw in those extra equations that I think, you know, that women have had to deal with up, up, you know, up to this point and beyond, what needs to happen to start, I think, is definitely like creating these spaces where that's encouraged. I think this all relates to normalizing children and parenting within mm. the music community. And I can tell you, having toured extensively with my children, it's it's interesting to watch promoters come at it from a different angle finally there are certain ones that you have to work yeah. on you know you have to say to a promoter no there is no difference between me having a pack and play on my rider as there is for me having two bottles of wine on my rider those are you know yeah. like those <laughs> it, it, there should be no issue with there being children backstage in fact venues should make it easy for parents to have children backstage mm-hmm. um and then just it becoming part of the conversation and there have been experiences where I haven't been able to have my baby in the venue my uh, baby that I am nursing oh be, wow. that is their food source I cannot have them in the venue so I have to wow. nurse the baby in the lobby of the venue where the people are coming in because they aren't allowed in the venue because of age restrictions and they're oh. not even allowed in the green room and my my caregiver is sitting in the lobby for the period of the whole show. Like it just makes no sense. So I think we have to normalize this conversation in the same way we have to normalize conversations around, you know, making space for women in all aspects of our industry. Yeah. I had no idea that you you had to face that. I mean, how dumb is that? You know, uh, no, it's, it's not. Well, the, you know what what your infant's going to do jameson shots in the green room with mom and the rest of the band yeah, like yeah you know, like, yeah well uh, mom might have to well mom yeah. might have to after well, yeah this. of course but yeah, yeah. It's, 
It's true, but you know what, though? To be fair, I never thought of that before. I was a mom on the road. It wasn't until mm. I was moving around with my kids that I realized like how many of our spaces are not built for children. And if those spaces are not built for children, how are women supposed to succeed in those spaces if yeah. they are the main a main food source? Not always the case, obviously. I'm speaking very personally. But also, like if we can't make these spaces for families or people with certain needs... How, how do we how do we make these spaces really inclusive? We can't. And those people who need those spaces will just decide not to go on the road. I can't tell you how many fellow moms I have who are yeah. amazing musicians who just say, I can't tour anymore. It's just I can't do it with kids. So how do we make this work for for and, and then make it equitable across the yeah. board? Listen, thanks. Thanks again so much. Like, we really, My pleasure. Really appreciate that uh, you took the time for us today. So. Thank you, guys. You are a rock Thank star. You Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. Have a great, Have a great day. day. That was a fantastic interview. Once again, thank you, Caroline Brooks. Oh, my God. Yes, much thanks to Caroline Brooks for that. You made our little podcast that much more sparkly and awesome. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I know yeah, to all, that was so fantastic. To all of our listener out there, uh, we're going to post all of the links to their site, uh, goodlovelies.com, things like that. Perhaps we'll see if we can scare up their YouTube yep. channel, that sort of thing. Uh, go and buy everything that they make because they are incredible. Now, talking of studios, Adam... I think it's time for, you know, a little dive into something that we do as a regular feature here. What do we call that thing again? Oblique strategy. 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 <laughs> yes, that's what we call it. All right, so I'm going to... Oh, oh, have I ever got a card for you, Adam? Oh, boy. Excellent. Bring it. And I think, I think this actually goes hand in hand with... Something you've done recently in your personal studio. Are you oh, ready for this? Yes. Okay, bring it. Tidy up. Tidy up. <laughs> yes, actually, keeping keeping your studio tidy and clean in general with good hygiene, uh, <laughs> especially in these in these in these crazy times, is really important. Especially when you have name actors coming into your facility. Yes. Um, Hey, you know, it's it's not just about impressing. It's just showing that you care about your space. Yeah. Um, no, you should it's... care about the space you work in and keep it clean. And then, you know what? We work in recording studios and there's cables everywhere. It can be really hard to do. But hey, man, every now and again, you got to run a vacuum over the fucking floor and over the oh, rugs. Yes. Come on. Yes. Get the cobwebs out of the corners. Keep it clean. Don't um, be Don't and... be that guy. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. And the same goes with your goddamn mixes. Keep it mm. clean. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Do not run everything down the middle and then compress it in, into oblivion so that your head is being chiseled when you listen to it with headphones. Yes, remember the dynamic range. All right, mm. what, else, what else does Brian have for us in terms <laughs> of oblique strategies? Now, after all of that great advice you just gave, here's what Brian says. Oh. You ready? Ready. Overtly resist change. <laughs> Overtly. 
I find that hilarious because it's almost like clean your studio, but you got to be better. Brush your teeth. Say your prayers, Hulkamaniacs. You know, all that sort of stuff you just said. And then it's like, well, now Brian Eno says, no, don't do any of that. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that's what he means. I don't think Brian Eno means don't brush your teeth. You know, I don't well, think he's saying yeah. that, I, you know. To the Wait, to the sort of contrary about what we're talking about, you know, of course, like a studio really is just a system for getting something down, something recorded. So and, you know, a lot of the things in the system that you have uh, do run on a certain set of rules there. Are, mm-hmm. You know, your your computer obviously has a limit to its hard drive capacity. Uh, your converters, they crunch the zeros and ones. There's no getting around a lot of the limits of your system. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, we are also doing creative things. So you need to think creatively while limited to the confines of your system. It's, you know what, it makes me actually think of way back in the day when I worked for a a multimedia company and we got a a fairly major contract for a, 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 a company that makes actually physically made computers. Mm -hmm. And they were going for a total rebranding. And one of the things that they did is they just said, you know what? We are using literally four colors in all of our our rebranding. It's going to be like a, a, a burgundy red, white, gray, black. That's hmm. it. All their images, black and white. Uh, if it, anything had a hue on it, it was this burgundy hue. Hmm. They really severely limited how their promotional arm had they limited how their promotional arm was able to promote them graphically um and you know arguably that made for a more cohesive message it's maybe the same thing with music uh, where sometimes when you are limited to the confines of a system sometimes that can bring out more creativity than when you're not limited hmm I like yeah. it. I like that. Waxing answer. philosophical really hard on that one. I was digging uh, for some digging for some gold on that. I, I think you I, I think you hit a little vein of gold there. I you know, for me some of that was um Brian's advice was what's wrong with putting a banjo on that EDM track? You know, what's or wrong what's with wrong that? with putting that uh Neil Peart fill in a, a John Denver track? <laughs> what's harken back to the original one yes <laughs> yes Can't what's wrong was <laughs> what was it divisions putting yeah, the divisions su- su- subdivisions yeah. yes playing subdivisions. playing yeah playing country roads like you're doing subdivisions by rush maybe <laughs> maybe 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 it's not so i still think we should try that you know maybe try that i'm gonna you know what i'm gonna try to figure out how to do something like that just for fun, for as they say, shits and giggles, or if you want to put those two words together, just for shiggles, um, <laughs> that might be fun. But talking about old songs brings me mm. to a regular feature we like to call Bring Out Your Dead Songs. We've been uh, we've been getting some uh, some some tracks from our listener. We've been actually getting them a lot from some of our interviews, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep it coming, man. We are musicologists. We love to hear everything that you got. So definitely bring out your dead songs. I, I got one recently in a submission that was kind of an accident that we might be adding to this segment at some point. 
Because we talk frequently of Gareth Carr and John Greenberg, and this dead song actually actually features the both of them on it. So, ho, ho, ho. cool. So, it's pretty tease, neat tease, little track, tease. actually. Tease, 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 you know. Um, so, yes, uh-huh. s- send us your stuff. We will put it up on our site. There will be a page dedicated to the dead tracks. And, you know, people can listen to your greatness from... You know, back in the day when you used to have to cut everything to wax cylinders because you couldn't afford a four-track, you know? And so. everything sounded like this. <laughs> you see, boy, I'm you see. A song. <laughs> Mary <laughs> had a little lamb. Yes, yes. So bust out your old tracks and all of that stuff. So Definitely. So, well, Adam, hey, another show in the can, as they say. In the right in the can, as it were. Um, yeah, that was really good, Tim. Uh, really awesome interview. We have a few more interviews lined up with some other really awesome people. So, you know, just keep your podcast feelies on because we got more coming for you. And um, of course, uh, to anyone who does listen to this podcast, we do appreciate any uh reviews uh that you can provide to us mm-hmm. on say apple podcasts show us some love uh hey man it helps everybody well, that's it it helps Cl- us anyway click um, all of the click all of the stars or click none of them it's okay or you know yeah. somewhere in the middle it's all it's all fine you know give us your truth namaste and <laughs> yeah and should you happen to know somebody who you think should be interviewed on this very podcast well yes. hey Please drop us a line. The submission form is on our website. You can simply fill it out and say, hey, my Uncle Bob is really cool. And it turns out Uncle Bob (laughs) is actually Keith Richards. Wait, what? How did that happen? So, yes, please. Especially since his name isn't even Bob. (laughs) Complete smokescreen, you know, so. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so Adam, you take care. Uh, it's time for that crazy music that happens in the outro, I think. Don't you? I think we should cue that up. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Thanks a lot, Tim. You have Thank a great you, week, buddy. You too. Take care, bud. We'll talk soon. Audible Brutality is presented by Adam Percy and Tim Vandeven and recorded remotely on Denman Island, British Columbia and in St. Jerome, Quebec. Music submissions or general inquiries can be made through our website at audiblebrutality.com. Give us a like on Facebook or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't yet, subscribe to the Audible Brutality podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening.